Hi, I'm Alan Knox, and thanks for listening to the Lamp and Light Podcast. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This podcast seeks to let the Bible shine into our hearts and minds by hearing the word preached. This first season is a collection of sermons from the early chapters of the book of Psalms that I preached at Crossroad Christian Church in McKinney, Texas. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So the first time I uh, was, was going to jump off a high dive as a kid, uh, I, I started, when I was studying this text, it sort of made me think about that moment. Uh, because like you've probably seen on television shows and uh, commercials and things like that, uh, I was that kid standing up on the high dive, standing at the edge, looking down, trying to decide whether or not I wanted to, and actually had a couple of false starts where I had to go back down the ladder because I decided it wasn't worth it, and then I got my courage back up again and went back up the ladder and stood on the edge a little while longer, uh, and I started to think about, you know, there is that moment where you decide to jump. And once your feet leave the diving board, there's the moment right after that where you decided you really don't want to jump. And at that point, it's too late. You can't go back. There's no going back. You can't fix it. All you can do is, you know, go ahead and go all the way down into the water. And we learned that lesson in life, I think, pretty quickly, that there are some things that no matter how much you want them to be different, they can't be different. No matter, you know, how, how many times you say to yourself, it isn't this way, it isn't this way, it isn't this way, it still is that way. And you, the only thing that you can do is accept reality as it is. Reality can be sort of a stubborn thing. And what the Bible reveals to us, in part, is that God is real. And so, no matter how much people might say to themselves, there is no God, there is no God. No matter how much they may want there not to be a God, no matter how much they might want their lives not to be ruled by God, you just can't change that reality. That's what Psalm 2 is really about. Look with me now at, the, uh, at these few verses here. Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. For all of us, there is a moment in life where we begin to recognize the way things really are. That life has certain limitations built into it. That by making certain choices in life, uh, you put yourself on a path that means other paths are cut off from you. Um, There was a point in my life where it became fairly obvious that a professional basketball player career was not really on the table any longer. That was actually about third grade, I think that happened. Um, there, you know, there are times when you realize that devoting yourself to one thing means that you can't be, you know, if you're going to be devoted as a preacher, as a pastor, you study certain things, which means you're not going to be devoted to becoming an economist. Uh, so you, you choose certain paths, and that means other things are, are cut off from you. That's part of what it means to be a finite creature. God doesn't have those problems. God, God doesn't say, well, I can, be an, I can be an expert in physics or I can be an expert in economics, but I can't do both. No, God is all-knowing. So he knows everything about physics, and he knows everything about economics. We are not that way. But what we can do is recognize reality as it is set before us. And it's interesting that that's the one thing we don't want to do. So we start out with, there's kind of four sections to this, this passage of Scripture. And the first section that I want you to see is the fact that the nations hate God. So verses 1 through 3, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So understand the nations here. Uh, This is written from the perspective of, of Israel. So in the Bible, there are two groups of people. There are the Jews and there are the nations or the Gentiles. Same, same, but the word Gentile just is a word that means the nations. Everybody who's not a Jew. So you've got the people of Israel and the nations. And the way this is being written here, this is not always the case, but this, the way this is being presented is the people of Israel are God's people, and the nations are against God. It reflects also on the fact that this comes down to the individual level. Nations are made up of people. And so it's not just that nations are 
anti-God, but at the level of an individual, people are against God. The nations of this world hate God because they believe that His laws are restrictive and interfere with their desire for self-governance. That's what's going on in these verses. We don't want God's laws on us. We want to make our own laws. We want to be in charge of ourselves. We want to be able to set the rules. We want to be able to, at the highest level, define reality. So when you hear people say, well, you know, that's truth for you, but my, my truth is different. That's this, that's this very thing. That's the desire to throw off reality because pesky reality has rules and, and laws that govern it. And I don't like that. I want to be able to set my own rules and my own order and my own view of reality. I don't want God to be over me. And you see this is even done sometimes by political persecution, by intimidation. People of this world don't want to talk about God because they want to throw off His law. Now, I said to you last week that uh, I think, and most scholars think, that Psalm 1 was either written or selected to be the first psalm of this book. And most scholars also agree that Psalm 2 is also uh, either written for or specifically selected to be the second psalm. Because these are the two great themes of the book of Psalm. How we're going to live and how we're going to be related to God. So in Psalm 1 we saw that those who are wicked, uh, they want to go their own way. They don't delight in God's law. The righteous person finds delight in God's law. But now in Psalm 2, we find the nations hating God's law. But here's the problem. It will not work. No matter how hard we try to throw off God's law, it can't be thrown off. It can't be done away with. You, you can try as hard as you want to to deny the law of gravity. I mean, there, you know, there's a, there's a mountain difference between the theory of evolution and the law of gravity. There's a reason why there's not a law of evolution. The evidence for gravity is overwhelming. Try as hard as you want to deny gravity. It cannot be denied. And that is how God's law is. It is reality. God's word is reality. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness 
suppress the truth. So this is really important to understand from, uh, as a Christian that we come to the world believing that the world that we live in, being made by God, reveals in part what God is like. And the only way that you can say there is no God or the only way that you can throw off God's law is to suppress the truth. And that's what's going on in the nations, and that's what's going on in the hearts of men and women around the world who deny God, who deny the Lord Jesus. They are wanting to throw away the rules and the laws. This is why when people uh, want to have a view of God in their lives, but they don't want to have God's rules, they reinvent a view of God that says God's okay with everything. They make up their own God. So the nations hate God. That's what the first three verses reveal to us. Number two, then, the second part of this is that God overwhelms the nations. Verses four through six. He who sits in heaven, who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God laughs uh, at the plans of the nations to throw God out of the public sphere. So, you know, this is what this is. This is the nation saying, um, God has no bearing. There is no God. God has no bearing on the kind of rules that we will make. This harkens back to you. Might, if you're a little older, if you've read something about this, back in the 1960s, I believe, uh, Time magazine came out with an article on the cover. It said, God is dead. And what they meant was the idea of God as a viable idea to influence society is dead. It no longer has influence. It wasn't true. It was a denial of reality. But that's the idea. The nations trying to throw God out of the public sphere. And God laughs at the plans of the nations. God terrifies them in his judgment. Um, you know, in some ways, I'm trying to think of there's just not a really good analogy that comes to mind as to how this would work for us. Uh, you know, the idea is almost of <clears throat> Well, I could sum it up, I guess, in an old joke that I heard, um, and, and forgive me if you've heard this before, but uh, you know that, that there was a um, commander of a battleship who uh, they were out at sea, and you know this was a long time ago when they would signal by lights flashing at each other, signaling Morse code, and so this battleship sees in the distance this light coming right towards it. 
And so the commander of the battleship says, or actually it's an admiral on board the battleship, and he's, he flashes the signal, uh, you know, turn five degrees to the left. And the messages flash back. You turn five degrees to the left. And the message uh, comes back. I am an admiral, and I am ordering you to turn uh, five degrees to the left. The message comes back. It says, I am first petty officer, and I am telling you turn five degrees to the left. And finally, the admiral, in his anger, flashes back and says, "Um, I am aboard a battleship. Turn five degrees to the left. And the message comes back, I am standing in a lighthouse. You turn five degrees to the left. And that's sort of the picture. No matter how much authority, no matter how much power you muster, you cannot change the reality that God rules over everything. So when you envision the most powerful nation of the world with all of their armies and all of their political power and all of their influence, and when that person says, God has no influence on our society, God laughs. Because he knows that society only exists by his will. I think, for instance, of the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, who in his pride and audacity one day looked out upon the city of Babylon and he said, Behold, the city of Babylon that I have created by my own will. For my own glory, this city exists. And in that moment, God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar and says, in essence, really? And God afflicts King Nebuchadnezzar with a mental illness for seven years, where he becomes convinced that he's an animal. So here's the most powerful ruler in the world, uh, ruling over the most powerful kingdom of the world, who just makes a claim that this kingdom exists by his will, and God says, oh, no, that's not the case at all. Your, your very sanity is based upon my power. So there's a lesson here, and it is a lesson for all people. You cannot hide from the reality of God's judgment. No matter how much you want something to be true, you cannot change reality. If you're standing out in the rain, telling yourself over and over again, it's not raining, it's not raining, it's not raining, you're still going to get wet. Isaiah 14, verses 26 and 27 says, This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? So the nations want to reject the kingdom of God, but God terrifies them. And and I want you to notice the way that he terrifies them. He doesn't terrify them by 
overthrowing the nation or by, by attacking them in some way. He terrifies the nations by installing his king in Zion. His king is Jesus. So Jesus is brought to the city of Jerusalem, is installed not on a throne but on a cross, is raised from the dead and is ascended into heaven where he sits on the throne at the right hand of God. All while the nations are saying, God has no influence. God has no power. We don't answer to God. We make our own rules. God simply says, oh yeah? And he appoints Jesus as king over all the world. And that's point then number three. God has appointed King Jesus. Beginning in verse 7, now the king speaks. So if you want to kind of follow the progression here, you've got in the first three verses, you have the nation speaking. And then in the uh, verses 4 through 6, you have God speaking. And now starting in verse 7, it is the king, the anointed one who is speaking. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Psalm 2, really almost more than any other psalm, is used as a messianic psalm in the New Testament. It is used to describe the promise of the Messiah coming. Uh, so this decree concerning this future king is that he will be called the Son of God and that he will receive the whole world as his possession. So you can, I mean, you can see how the New Testament writers saw so clearly that this was a reference to Jesus. There is no other king who receives the nations as a possession. There is no, no king of Israel who uh, can lay claim to this kind of title and authority. When we refer to Jesus Christ, we are affirming this truth. The word Christ means anointed one. And it is a way of describing Israel's king. So, uh, for instance, uh, in the Old Testament, King David refers to Saul, who is the king before him, as the Lord's anointed, or if we're following the same wording, the Lord's Christ. So the word Christ is just a title that attaches, it's not Jesus' last name, uh, it, it is a title that attaches to the name Jesus, essentially meaning Jesus the King. So, as Christians, and here, here's where we really come to what it means to be a believer in Jesus. We saw in Psalm chapter 1 that being a believer in Jesus means choosing a particular lifestyle to live or choosing a particular path to walk on. Now, in Psalm chapter 2, what we see is being a Christian means seeing Jesus... As our king, we reverence him. We proclaim him as the king over all the nations. His throne is in heaven with God, but one day he will return to claim the earth as his possession. 
And we are waiting that day. So Luke 19 tells us about the time that we are in right now. This is the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Luke 19 uh, verses 11 through 14 says, And uh, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Jesus is saying that is his experience. That is, he is, he's going to the cross, he's going to die on the cross, he will be raised from the dead, and he will ascend into heaven going far away for a period of time, so to speak, uh, to receive this kingdom. And while he is away, he says to his faithful servants, use what I've given you to serve me. Use what I've given you to advance my causes, my purpose in the world. But the nations are saying, we don't want him to be king. We don't want him to rule over us. That's the experience that we have living between these two times, between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The parable goes on to say that the king rewarded those who worked for him and punished those who hated him. So then, we, we have, here's sort of the logical progression of this passage the nations hate God, rebel against God, but even in the rebellion, they cannot overcome God. God simply overwhelms them by completing his plan in Jesus anyway. Jesus is appointed as king. So this is now number four. What should we do? In the light of the fact that the kingdom of Jesus is like a brick wall or like a lighthouse that you cannot overcome, you cannot move out of the way, what should you do? Number four, then, we are wise to submit to Jesus' authority. So the nations and the people of this world hate God and don't want Jesus as their king. And yet God has enthroned Jesus and given him the nation's as a possession. So what should the nations do? Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, in my mind, this is a highly offensive statement. You don't want Jesus to be your king, but God says he is king. So, what does the Bible say you should do? Give up. You can't change reality. 
You can't stop God. You can't overcome the kingdom of Jesus. You can't avoid the coming judgment of the world. God has ordained that he is going to judge the world. So what should you do in the light of the fact that Jesus is coming back to judge the world? You should submit to his authority. But remember the last line of this psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, those who turn to Jesus find him to be much more than an all-powerful God who will judge the world. They also find him to be a gentle and kind shepherd for their souls. There is hope in the gospel, not just judgment. There is a hope in the return of Jesus for those who will submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They find him to be a gracious and kind ruler. You see, one of the things that I think we are struggling with, not only in this nation, but in this world, is a vacuum of leadership. We cannot find a leader who has enough love and care and generosity and knowledge and power that we could entrust that person with the authority over the whole world. And if you want to know why our Constitution is set up the way that it is, with checks and balances, so I mean, at least it's supposed to be this way, according to the Constitution, one branch of the government makes the laws, that's the legislative branch, and one branch of government executes the laws, executive branch, and one branch of government judges whether or not the laws are being kept within the bounds of the Constitution, the judicial branch. If you want to know why it is that the Founding Fathers did that, it is because they were convinced that there was no person on this earth who could rightly govern with the power, all of that power concentrated in one place. Can't find a leader who is wise enough and good enough and gracious and kind and just and all of the attributes that have to go into ruling over the world. But for those who turn to Jesus, we find him to be not just the true king, but the perfect king. And so we find ourselves that it is not just prudent to submit to Jesus. He's not just wise because the reality is he is coming back to judge the world and we can either submit to him or be judged. We find that we were created for him. We find our truest purpose in him. We find that he is the truest uh, human being among us. He is the one who is made human so that we might know him. So the question then that we have to end with is, 
How will you respond to that king? One day what is now invisible will become visible. Are you ready for that day? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Lamp and Light Podcast. If you want to be updated when new episodes are available, make sure you subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review so that more people can find this podcast in the future.